0: Chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. Try this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray today as we come to this time that you would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Was well, so great to, to be back here and could just talk on and on about that. I'm going to try not to, but the church directory thing sounds cool. Did y'all use Olin Mills? Is that something you're familiar with? So I'm imagining a nice autumn backdrop in the back, in the foyer out here to get those pictures up and going or some darting neon lines maybe for the band. Anyway, so. <laughs> If you don't know me, we can talk so later, but we we planted a church in Cleveland, Tennessee, and as a part of that journey, we have moved into kind of a, a tough neighborhood in our city, made some sacrifices to do that, but we've been blessed uh, beyond compare by our wonderful neighbors, but it's not always great. And one night this past fall, we had invited a group of people over from our church to watch the Braves beat the Dodgers in Cardinals country. Oh, thank you there. See that hand? Uh, <laughs> The Braves lost that night, so it wasn't a good night. We know what happened in the end though. But, uh, but the biggest loss that night was not the Braves. So earlier that night, my son had been with some of his friends down at the park. And evidently, there had been some type of conflict that transpired that led to another child in the neighborhood's motorcycle leaking oil and being turned over. Now, don't ask why there's motorcycles in the city park, right? But we're in Paragould, so maybe that makes sense. And so... I look out the door to my house and all these people are there watching, trying to have a nice, relaxing night. And there's like 15 to 20 teenagers and kids like who have congregated outside our door. I don't know what they're going to do. You know, I guess they're looking to, you know, get my son and sacrifice him or something. I don't know. And so I go out there because I know a lot of the guys. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, your son knocked this motorcycle over. It destroyed it or whatever. It sounded horrible. And I'm like, well, let's walk down there and look. I walked down there and all that had happened was somehow the oil cap on the, and I'm no mechanic, but I know this, had like got screwed off and it had leaked a little oil. So I just set the motorcycle up and turned it. Later that night, we found out some other kid had did it, but that wasn't the point. Uh, the point was teenager who's related to the, to the boy who had the motorcycle oil leak has already called his mom. Now we know mama, we love mama, we've helped her in many different ways, many different difficult parts in her journey, but she's, you know, this mama bear, and so I'm helping, I think I've rectified the situation, right, diffused everything, it's all good, but then all of a sudden here she comes, stomping across the park, and she begins to just yell at me at the top of her lungs, calling me every obscenity that you could think of. Now we've got our Nice church group on our porch, right? Some outside talking, listening to this. We have all of our other neighbors who were trying to love and build relationships because we didn't move there just to treat people like a project, right? Make us feel good, get our church photo up, and go home. Like We've sacrificed to live here and to love people in the name of Jesus and the stuff of everyday life. And so as she's going off on me and all these, the worst part was is when she got around to screaming how we didn't belong there. And that inferring that we probably think we're better than everybody. And, you know, all these messages I'm hearing in my head is like, you know, this is, we've actually made things worse. I'm hearing in your head, these sacrifices don't amount to anything but hurting others, hurting your family, and even those you're seeking to love. And there's a phrase we hear a lot in our culture today. It's called being on the wrong side of history. I don't know if y'all have heard that or, you know, you don't want to be on the right side of history. And I was just thinking in my mind right now, are are we the bad guys in this story? Like we mean well, but are we just making things worse? As Christians, we've got to to be able to to deal with that. Because many times in our broader world, we're going to be expressly told for believing in Jesus and the words that he teaches in this book that we call the Bible, that we're just on the wrong side of history. And for all our good intentions, we are making things worse. But it's not just as we think culturally, it's as we look in the mirror and you think about, wow, I've invested all this time and energy in my life to know and follow Jesus and I don't feel like I'm any better off than I was 20 years ago. Ten years ago, five years ago, I've become a part of a church. And honestly, this far down the road, I don't know if anything's less messy (laughs) or anything's less difficult than it ever was. And so we can get in our heads and think, maybe I'm in the wrong story. We're tempted to believe we're on the wrong side. We may be the bad guys. We may be just caught up in some sort of history of religious power plays and abuse that's a power grabbing system that Jesus has just been used as a mascot so that people get to make money and make much of themselves. And who wants to give their life to that? Who wants to reorient your life as we talk about in our churches to actually be a a group of followers of Jesus, what we call a missional community, if it seems like it just ends up being worse than it was when we weren't? And these conversations may make us anxious, but they're helpful for our discipleship because we are not the first people, right? We got to... Stop navel-gazing so much. We are not the first people in the history of the church who've wrestled with these things. Abraham thought, "Uh uh-oh, God promised me I was going to have a son. Yeah, 100 years later, and we read the short version, right? Abraham lived that story. Job. David. Jeremiah, the disciples in this text, looking around and wondering, did we put all our chips in on the wrong bet? And if you follow Jesus for any significant amount of time, you've wondered that or you're going to wonder it. How do we not quit? How do we stay resilient? Resilient is a word that can be defined in different ways, but for the sake of our time today how do we persevere in the midst of really difficult things we only grow as resilient disciples by believing and trusting the promise that the kingdom of Jesus is the right side of history it's the only way so how do we do that that's not easy the first thing is we have to adjust our expectations of the now If we're going to grow as resilient disciples who follow Jesus as the king who is the right side of history, we have to adjust our expectations of the now or we will be paralyzed and we will quit. Some of you in here may be there. Notice in this parable, the mustard seed is small. The yeast or the leaven is hidden. The work is hard. Small, hidden, and hard. That is the life of the kingdom now. This is what Jesus said it was going to be like. And if you're like me, I forget that all the time. Jesus was supposed to come on the scene and be the king of Israel that all the world had waited for. He was supposed to rid the, the the land of Israel of all the public injustices that the Roman Empire had put upon them. I mean, people are walking down the road and seeing their relatives and friends hanging on crosses. And what does Jesus do? He says, I want to teach you some parables. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? And then he says, here's the purpose of these parables. They're not like you might have been told to be illustrations to help you better understand the truth. If you read in the text, the purpose of the parables is actually to see who actually cares to hear what Jesus has to say to be a follower, and who's just there as a consumer looking for an experience. So I'm going to share these stories that are going to be a little confusing, and the people who really want to know are going to have to go deeper, but the people who are just like, ah, that's too much, will leave. Jesus is actually saying, we're going to shrink our group. And then he tells them these parables in this context, first of the parable of the souls. We can't go through all of them in detail, but we know the first seed falls among the hard ground and falls away. The next seed falls on the rocky ground, sprouts up, looks like it's gonna be revival, but then there's no roots, so it dies. The third seeds fall among the thorns and it grows looking good. And then it's choked out by the cares, deceits and riches of the world. And then there's the fourth seed that falls and it's good soil. And it grows. Guess what? I'm no mathematician. Three out of four are bad soil, bad seeds. You know what that means? There is going to be a lot of fake Christians. There are going to be a lot of things and situations in discipleship with people where you think, wow, this is great. And it doesn't end great. And guess what Jesus said? You should expect that. If you're like, whoa, I didn't sign up for something that's going to be small, hidden, and hard, and everybody, and three fourths of the people are fake, then guess what? You you didn't listen to Jesus. (laughs) He said, that, that's, that's what this is going to be like. And then he tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the weeds. And he says, yes, the kingdom is growing. The kingdom is doing great things in the world, but guess what? Until the end, these tares, KJV, these weeds are going to be growing too. And that's not going to be sorted out until the end. And I don't want you going around being Mr. Christian weed eater trying to make it all right right now. So guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to stay resilient, you've got to adjust your expectations this life together is going to be small, hidden, and hard. It's going to be confusing. These disciples, my goodness. Jesus called them and none of them seem to ever get it. They're fighting amongst one another. They're arguing who's going to be first. And this is who Jesus latches the hopes of the promises of all of history to. I know it's summer and y'all got some rain. As I thought about this experience and what it's like and why it's so hard, because we don't need to stuff it, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's telling us, hey guys, small, hidden, hard souls, weeds, get ready. But sometimes it feels like if you're blowing leaves while the leaves are still falling, or even worse, you're blowing your leaves in your garage. <laughs> and you're like doing this and it's like they're just swirling back around. <laughs> and you do all this work and it's like, what's the point? That's what it feels like being a Christian a lot. Or at least it does for me. Y'all might be like all oh, like super spiritual like, then this guy's got issues. <laughs> I've, I've been following Jesus a long time. By God's grace, when I was in high school, I think I was a sincere follower of Jesus. I'm not saying that to brag, because here's the reality. What's so discouraging to me is I still find myself confessing the same sins now I did when I was 17 years old. And I'm like, this is horrible. We, we planted a church. We came from a traditional Southern Baptist church. And, and again... We're blessed by that in some ways, but you know, there's, there's all these things you're like, oh, we're going to come be a part of a church like this, like fellowship, Paragold at the time, crossing. We won't have to worry about relational issues with people. <laughs> That's funny if you don't know. So like, you know, uh, you know, in the other church, it's like, you know, you've got the organ player who's giving you the cold shoulder cause you forgot to pray for her n- nephew in the public prayer. And, you know, so you walk in, hey, and it's like. (laughs) Well, guess what? There's plenty of cold shoulders to go around in this room, too, aren't there? (laughs) And you're like, I keep trying to figure out how to do this where it won't be small, hidden, and hard. And Jesus says, it's going to be small, hidden, and hard. You don't have to stuff it. You can talk about it and not give up on each other. You don't need to force it. Because sometimes we're like, I'm, I'm going to take this into my own hands. But again, what are you trying to do? You're trying to figure out how to so it won't be small, hidden, and hard. All of us in here are experts on saying, you know what? I'm going to take Jesus' d- definition of a disciple, deny yourself, and take up your cross, And I'm going to make it where I don't have to take up a cross. (laughs) Or I'm going to find a church that has figured out how I can take up a cross and it not feel like a crucifixion. And I need leaders who are going to figure out how to make this so I don't have to deny myself and take up my cross. (laughs) And maybe you can, but you won't be following Jesus. Because Jesus says, it's small, it's hidden, It's hard, but don't quit. So how do we not quit? Well, we've got to adjust our expectations of the now, but thankfully Jesus doesn't leave us there, right? Welcome to my depressing TED Talk. No. Uh, You're dismissed. No. We got to adjust expectations not just to the now, but we equally and as much if not more have got to adjust our expectations of the not yet. The parable doesn't end with the mustard seed was small and the yeast is hidden. No, the parable says the kingdom of heaven, verse 31, if you want to look again, is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus here is speaking to the kingdom of God again. He is not speaking of something that we can always see. He's not speaking of like a geography. He's speaking of the sphere of God's restoring, reconciling, saving reign. But he's speaking of something that as it works its way into the world, in both these parables, again, it is small. It is hidden. It's like a mustard seed. In this day and time, the mustard seed was considered the smallest of seeds. And yet it grew into this tree-like bush that birds actually could come and rest in and be blessed by. It would provide shade. It would provide nutrition. These birds even represent that the blessing would not just be for the people of Israel, those whom Jesus is most directly talking to here, But in the Bible, we see this is a reference, a metaphor to the fact that Gentiles, that people even outside where the expectation that the kingdom will come would experience this, that the kingdom of God would not be a fad that lasts for a particular period of time, but it would be the display of the covenant faithfulness of God that brings good news to all the world. But how does it grow? It's an organic growth. It's not an explosive growth. Certainly in the history of the church, we see great revivals that take place. But even then, if you look, it's a small ripple in a large pond of the whole world. And although we hope that such things happens, in the Bible, we are told again and again, and even directly in an Old Testament prophet, that we are to not despise the day of small things. That goes cuts against the current of our American culture, though, doesn't it? Do not despise the day of small things. I'm tired that this is so small. I quit. Don't despise it. It's like a mustard seed. It doesn't look like much when it goes in the ground. But in the end, it will be a blessing to the nations. An inconsequential inco- appearing leads to beginning, that is, leads to an inevitable end. And then there's the yeast or the leaven in verse 33. It's like a woman that took and mixed it in about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Again, this yeast, this leaven is small and it's hidden and yet it's pervasive in its influence and its impact that people don't see until the end. A little bit is very powerful if it is worked in as a faithful presence. Because a faithful presence of the kingdom will be revealed in the end to be a powerful and fruitful presence. It may be hard to see, Jesus said, but the kingdom is growing, the kingdom is pervading, and it will not fail. You know, some people have left the worst sports games in the history of the world. Maybe in the second or third quarter if it's football or basketball, maybe in the sixth or seventh or eighth inning if it's baseball. Pick your sport. They've left the worst sports game in the history of the world only to watch the replay the next day of the best sports game in the history of the world. And that's what so many of us are tempted to do and many of us have done as disciples at times or some of you today are tempted to do is you're saying, I'm out. And Jesus is saying, hang on. hang on, don't leave the game early. I know right now it's small, hidden and hard. It looks like all strikeouts. But I've promised you the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. Alan Hirsch writes of the rise of the underground church of China. And a lot of times we've got to go outside of our culture to understand what it means to obey these things. Because we want to do our own thing. But he writes of the rise of the underground church of China. He says the explicit aim of the cultural revolution was to obliterate Christianity and all religion from China. And at the end of the reign of Mao and his system in the late 70s. And the subsequent lifting of the so-called bamboo curtain in the early 80s. Foreign missionaries and church officials were allowed back into the country. So all the, the missionaries that had came had been, had been ran out. They were allowed back in. And they expected to find a church that had been decimated. I mean, there was nothing to see. Small, hidden, hard. They expected the disciples to be a weak and battered people. But on the contrary, they discovered that Christianity had flourished beyond all imaginations. Anywhere from 60 to 80 million Christians. They had very few Bibles. It's told that sometimes house churches were sharing one page from a Bible. They would read it and pass it to the next. And guess how they did this? They did it without any pastors or leaders (laughs) guilting them into doing it. We romanticize that stuff just like we romanticize Abraham and Sarah waiting on their baby. Wasn't nothing romantic about that. It was hard. It was small. It was hidden. You think it's hard for you to show up to a family meal? (laughs) They show up and their kids might get killed. Because they believed in the parable of the mustard seed. And the leaven, there were no book deals, no podcasts, no social media to show everybody how great they were and faithful they were to Jesus. There was simply the promise and the hope that the kingdom of Jesus was the kingdom who wins in the end against all appearances of the present. How do we keep going? How do we keep persevering as resilient disciples? We adjust our expectations of the now, but we adjust them with the not yet, right? We're not wasting our time. We're not showing up with a defeated spirit. This is meaningless, but I guess I have to do it so God's not mad at me and a leader doesn't want to have coffee. We do it because we know that Jesus has promised that he is growing in us. Well, he is not going to give up on. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, he says that the work that God has started in you, he will bring to completion in Christ Jesus. Some of you in here are giving up on yourselves. You've just given up on the whole thing. And the good news you need to hear is that Jesus has not given up on you. Even when Paul was in jail, he he knew that. Corporately, sometimes we look around in our life together as a church and it's like, well, there's Paul and Barnabas parting ways. There's Paul and Peter disagreeing over the gospel. But it's not leaders of the church that the promises rest on for the church. It's that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And he doesn't want us to leave the game early. We look out out of the world and increasingly it may get harder in our culture to be Christians who believe what Jesus teaches in his word. But my goodness, these first Christians, it was way harder for them than anything we might could even imagine. But they believed in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And so they gave their lives again and again to follow Jesus and to do it together. So Jesus is encouraging them like he's encouraging us through these parables to keep plotting, to keep persevering, to be resilient disciples knowing that work is happening through the power of the word, the power of the gospel, even if you can't see it. He wants you to continue to come to him alone in his word, to read, to pray, and to grow. And you might be like, well, I don't ever remember anything I read. Guess what? I couldn't tell you what I preached on two weeks ago. And I preached it. (laughs) But what encourages me, and y'all probably heard this a hundred hundred times, is I also have no clue what I ate for supper four nights ago. But my goodness, that went into my body and it nourishes me and it grows me. Do I see it? Well, yeah, sometimes. (laughs) Little Caesar's the sponsor of family meals all across the country. It's working. Keep plotting in your, your, your missional community, your DNA. You're like, I don't see anything happening. The parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Don't despise the day of small things. Henry Nouwen says it this way, how different our life would be if we could but believe that every little act of faithfulness, every gesture of love, every word of forgiveness, every little bit of joy and peace will multiply and multiply. He says, imagine your kindness to your friends and your generosity to the poor are little mustard seeds that will become strong trees in which many birds can build their nest." Now, imagine that's how you come to your family, to your spouse, to your kids, to your coworkers. Not I'm going to change the world, right? We can't even change the laundry half the time, right? We need to dial it down. Changing the world. I'm going to do little faithful acts of kindness that I don't see how it works out. I'm going to go to family meal. DNA, and I'm not going to sit back and say, I wish I would make this worth my time. Or give me a reason to be here. Here's your reason to be there. Parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. I'm going to show up and I'm going to find somebody to be kind to in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says that has eternal consequence. It's so worth it. It's so worth it. This is why Jesus is here with these 12 slap nuts and all the other disciples. If you're ever frustrated about your missional community, I want you to go to the gospels and study Jesus's missional community. (laughs) When's the last time y'all were rebuking Jesus and he was calling you Satan? (laughs) Satan. Why did Jesus hang in there with them? And why do they hang in there? And why should we hang in there? What's well, the last thing? It's not just adjusting our expectations of the now and the not yet, but we've got to adjust our expectations of who our primary association is. Because when we're thinking about this being on the right side of history, it's like, well, I'm on the right group. I'm on the right, the right side of our own stories. Am I doing the right thing? You know, I got a lot of other better things I could be doing. You know, really a lot of better things, right? Binge watching that next thing on Netflix, right? A lot of better things I could be doing. I like doing that too. That's not a judgment. Uh, But they were confused too. There was the Pharisees. There was the Sadducees. There was the Romans. There was the Greeks. There was the Samaritans. And everybody's like, which group do I latch myself to? Here's the question. Who's the only one who can back up their promise? Because there's only one who went to the cross and came out of the grave. Do you believe that the way of the cross is the only way to the way of resurrection? That's why when Jesus says, take up your cross it's not bad news it's small hidden and hard but it's the only way to become the most fully flourishing human that you can be jesus lived this for us he came into this world in a very small hidden and hard way as a baby to an unknown family from a town called nazareth and he lived a life where he sowed kindness and goodness and faithfulness and love for God and neighbor in so many little ways that people mocked him and didn't take him seriously. They thought Jesus was the biggest waste of time. And Yet he went to a cross. And as well known as it is to us, on that day, he was hanging between two criminals. It was just another dude getting killed. Because he blasphemed God. And yet what didn't look like much to the world. Is why we're sitting here in Paragold, Arkansas. Those disciples would have had their minds blown. You mean this mess will lead to this? They didn't know where Arkansas was. If you don't know this is the power of the gospel that Jesus is resurrected and so everything is worth it but that means then he's got to be our primary association how do you know if you're on the right track in life or right track with the world are you clinging to Jesus it's not worth it doing it for me or a pastor or an organization yeah that'll burn you out Are you doing it for Jesus? We're listening to an audio book on the way here called Everything Sad is Untrue. I don't know how the book ends, so I can't vouch for the whole thing. But this part we got to, I think, is really good, and it explains this. It's about a Muslim refugee who come to this country. It's lauded by NPR and Time Magazine and all these places. So this blew my mind, what you're about to hear. He said, my mom was a Saeed from the bloodline of the prophet. That's the prophet Muhammad. If I'm getting this right, they were Shiite Muslims, but they were from a a specialized group called a Saeed that was actually a direct bloodline from Muhammad. He says, in Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. So that means there's capital punishment if you commit it. If you're found guilty in religious court, they'll kill you. He says that if you convert to something else like Buddhism or, or something, it's not so bad, probably because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are sister religions, and you always have the worst fights with your sisters. That's why I hesitated before I shared that. I was like, is that relevant? He said, and probably nothing happens if you're a six-year-old, because the, the his sister had become a Christian through like an encounter with God in her bedroom. And she came out and told everyone that, and... The mom, his mom, knew that. Wow, if you believe that, then we can all be killed. So this is what's the part that's hard to believe, he says, in the story is that Sima his mom, read about Jesus and she became a Christian too. He says not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket, she fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow through to earn good things, but all you had to do with Jesus was to believe and trust in him as the one who had died for you, and she believed. Now, he's a Muslim refugee in Oklahoma, and he says, when I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me as he's telling it from the perspective of a 12-year-old kid, and they say, but okay, why did she convert? Why really? We know all that Jesus stuff, right? Isn't that what we would do? He says, because up to that point, I've told them about the house that we used to live in in Iran with birds in the walls. This was a good thing, these glass walls where birds would sit. All the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mom's own medical practice. She had both an MD and a PhD that was recognized in Iran. All the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. All the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. (laughs) Why else would she believe it? She believes it's true and more valuable than $7 million in gold coins, thousands of acres of Persian countryside, 10 years of education to get a medical degree, all your family, a home, the best cream puffs of Jolfa, and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that, that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you so that he could have you, there's no middle ground. You can't say it's a quirky thing, she thinks sometimes, because she went all the way with it. And if it's not true, she made a giant mistake. She doesn't think so. She had all the wealth, the love of all the people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Saeed, and she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places people hate refugees, with a husband who hits harder than a second degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. More backstory to that. And she'll tell you it's worth it, why? Because Jesus is better. It's true, we can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why SEMA converted, since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can believe she's dead wrong, but you can't make her agree with you. (laughs) To her, it's true. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And the whole story hinges on it. (laughs) Seema, who was such a fierce Muslim that she marched for the revolution, who studied the Quran the way very few people do, read the Bible, came to know Jesus, and believed that he was the Lord of all history. That's when you push all the chips in, even when it's small and hard and hidden. He goes on to write about this about his mom. He says, this is the legend of my mom, the legend of the mom who can't be stopped. Not when you hit her. Not when a whole country full of goons puts her in a cage. Not even if you make her poor and try to kill her slowly slowly. In the little by little poison of sadness. And the legend is true. I think because she's fixed her eyes on something beyond the rivers of blood. How do we stay resilient as disciples? We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. If you get your eyes off on all these other things you're going to start drowning just like Peter did when he stepped out on those waters. How do we do this? We've got to remember the gospel. We don't know what we're doing anymore and why we're doing it. It's a good sign we need to go back to why we started in the first place. I mean, we believe that Jesus said you were to be my disciples and he showed us how he made disciples It's not some program some pastor came up with, but he did life on life, life in community, and life on mission with people. They lived like a family of servant missionaries who were just hungry to get to know him and share that with the world. And Jesus said, we'll do this better together. Yes, even you tax collector and zealot, let's put you two together and do this. Because the fact that it doesn't make sense demands the gospel explanation of why Jesus is better. This is the good news. It's why the father of modern missions, William Carey, endured years of suffering, sickness, dysentery, lost a child. And many days he said he felt spiritless and went to work like a soldier who only expects to be defeated. Six years of agonizing, bitter missionary work and it produced not a single convert. Convert. But in the end, there were some who came to know Jesus. And he said it was worth it. And they asked him how. And he said, because, because of Jesus, I can plod. I can persevere in a definite pursuit. And to this, I owe everything. Believed in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Do I see anything? No. Is this hidden? Is this small? Is this hard? Yes. But is Jesus crucified, risen, reigning, and returning for me even more true? This is how we grow as resilient disciples who rest in the promise that the kingdom of Jesus is the right side of history. Father, thank you for the promise we need. Thank you that you never gave up on us. Thank you that you don't come to us today with condemnation for our quitting hearts, but you come to us with the grace that forgives, heals, and delivers. We need your help. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.